Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, good afternoon, fun seekers. How you doing? A little bit after noon Central Time. Great to be here. Hope you enjoyed the show this morning. This is our show, second show of the day. And we're going to talk about your heart, baby, with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Ovedia, is that right, Ovedia? Okay, let me see. Yeah. I should have got that before we went on there. We had a little problem. How do you say it? Uh, Ovedia. Ovedia. Yep, you got it right. Oh, I got it right. Well, good. He's a, he's a heart surgeon, and he does telemedicine, and he helps people to not go on his operating table. That's the name of his book. It's a great title. Let me show you it again, just so you see it. It's just cool. Uh, stay off my operating table. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to talk with Dr. Avedia. He's uh, uh, been around, well, 25 years, and a cardiothoracic surgery specialist. I got a feeling I never want to go have business with you. Well, that's exactly it, Patrick. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, hopefully that's the central message that we can get across to people today as we get into it, uh, that you would much rather uh, talk to me over telemedicine and learn how not to need me as a heart surgeon uh, than to end up on my operating table. Yes, sir. So that's what you do with your telemedicine work. Uh, you help people to not not see you and stay home and be happy and, and, and that. So... Kind of explain to me, Doc, what you do as a heart surgeon. We know, I think there's two different kinds of issues, and probably more, but uh, myocardial infarction, right? That's where the heart muscles have a bad hair day, and they're just not happy, and the heart gets damaged. And then we also have atherosclerosis, where the, the arteries get clogged up with stuff, and we'll talk about that. Are those the two things you work with? Well, so those are really related things, and that's probably, that's the major issue that I deal with. Now, understand that heart, uh, heart disease is the number one killer in the United States and worldwide, wow. and has been that way for a very long time. Here in the United States, heart disease um, has been the number one killer for at least the past 50 years, hmm. uh, five, zero, 50. And so we've been battling against heart disease for all this time. And quite frankly, we're losing your internet a little bit. Okay. The recent statistic every year and um, that, you know, we're really not making a meaningful impact on the, uh, you know, on the rates and the, uh, on the rates of heart disease. So what I have seen now in my career, you know, as a heart surgeon for the past 20 years, um, the most common form of heart disease I deal with is atherosclerosis, like you said, mm -hmm. which is basically buildup of plaque in the arteries of the heart. Those plaques can ultimately get to the point where they are causing uh, significant blockage in the blood vessel and there's not enough blood flow getting to the heart uh, and that ultimately can lead to having a heart attack where a section of the heart um, basically starts dying because it's not getting oh, blood flow. I see. So and, they and, are connected. You'd have to have one before the other, correct? Correct, correct. 
Yeah. So uh, myocardial infarction, as you as you said, um, which is our fancy name for a heart attack, is basically the end product, uh, the result of atherosclerosis. And the unfortunate thing is that most people uh, don't address their heart disease until it gets to that point. And mm -hmm. the reality is, is that we can be doing things uh, to recognize it and prevent it way before it gets to that point. And so that is what I uh, now try and work with people on is making sure we don't get to that point that you're having a heart attack and that you're potentially facing, you know, needing a stent put in or seeing me and ending up on my operating table for me to now do, uh, you know, open heart surgery, a major surgical procedure on you to deal with these issues. That's what that's called, an open heart surgery, where you actually go in and clean out these arteries, do stents, and we'll talk about some of the things you do, correct? That's that's your that's your job. Um, yes, yes. And, you know, there are, there are kind of two different uh, types of heart procedures that people uh, oftentimes undergo. So putting in stents, um, with what's done, uh, a cardiac catheterization, it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, that is oftentimes, that is usually done by interventional cardiologists. Um, so these are, um, you know, heart specialized doctors, and they're using catheters, and they're working through the arteries, either in the groin or in the wrist, uh, to um, open up blocked blood vessels sort of from the inside. Um, when the problem has progressed uh, got in more advanced, uh, that's oftentimes where I come into play. And uh, we do what's called bypass surgery. So we are actually, most in, in most cases, opening up the chest, and we are now rerouting hmm. the blood around the blockages. We're no longer directly addressing the blockages. We are rerouting the blood around the blockages. So you actually do, now, they're literally a bypass, literally a bypass. It's literally a bypass, mm. yep. Uh, and what's important for people to understand about that, whether we're talking about the stents or whether we're talking about bypass surgery, is we're not addressing the problem that led to those blockages mm. occurring in the first place. Um, we're basically putting a Band-Aid on the problem. We're you know, improving your symptoms, improving your life, gonna make you feel better oftentimes going to save your life if you're in the middle of having a heart attack. Um, these can literally be life-saving procedures, um, but they don't address why you got the problem in the first place. And that's what we need to do a better job of. We need to talk about why you get these problems in the first place and what we can be doing, like I said, to prevent it, to stop it from, you know, not let it get to that point where you now need a heart surgeon to take care of it. But, and we'll dig into that, of course, on the diet. And I suspect, uh, is I, I don't want to make too big of an assumption, but is it 100% diet, 90%, 80%? Um, yeah, it's probably, you know, I usually say it's 90 to 95% diet and other lifestyle yeah. issues. Um, you know, very Stress. little of this has to yeah. Yeah. yeah, stress, sleep, exercise, activity, all of these things come into play. Um, but the diet is a major chunk of it. And if we uh, address the food that we're eating, I believe that that is the way that we are going to have a significant impact on 
the incidence of heart disease and we can start to meaningfully reduce um, the you know 650,000 people that die every year from heart wow. disease. Half a million, over half a million people. Over half a million people every year just here in the United States um, die from heart disease. So um, it is a major problem. It has been a major problem for a long, long time. And quite frankly, many of the things that we have been uh, told to do to prevent it uh, aren't working. Um, and so that's why I think we need a fresh look at the problem. We need a different approach. And that is what I ultimately do with people in my medical practice. Uh, that is what I you know, discuss in the book, Stay Off My Operating Table. And people... People need to be thinking about this problem differently. And quite frankly, the healthcare system, uh, doctors need to be thinking about this problem yes, differently. Sir. How can you be so confident, um, other than taking people apart and looking at the arteries, of what you've written in the book and what we're going to talk about as far as diet um, is, is accurate? How, how would you know? Well, you know, a lot of it is based on my own personal experience, to mm -hmm. be honest. Um, I was a very unhealthy heart surgeon. Um, I had reached a point uh, going back now about uh, 10 years where I was morbidly obese. I was pre-diabetic. And I realized that I was going to end up on my own operating table, so to speak. Um, I was at a loss of what to do because I was following the advice that I had been educated to give people. Um, in you know, medical school. We've all heard they, it. They taught you in medical school. Yeah, in, in medical school and, and during my training. And, you know, during the first part of my career, move more, um, avoid fat, eat a low-fat diet. Uh, and it wasn't working for me, and it wasn't working for my patients. You know, I had all these patients ending up on my operating table. And they were doing what they had been told to do. You know, they were taking their medications and they were eating the low fat diet. And yet they were still ending up on my operating table. Mm. So, you know, I, I started to ask some different questions and, uh, you know, seek out some different information, some different um, uh, thoughts on why we get unhealthy. And, you know, it, interestingly, my my focus at first was really the obesity, you know, the pre-diabetes. How do I lose weight? Um, and I came across uh, a number of, you know, different information sources. Uh, Gary Taubes, who's an investigative journalist, was an influential uh, start to my journey. And I realized that our advice around what to eat to lose weight and to be healthy was was wrong. Um, and ultimately, I was able to lose uh, 100 pounds. I've been able to maintain that weight loss now for many, many years. Um, I've reversed my prediabetes. And quite frankly, you know, today at 48 years old, I'm in much better shape and I feel much better than I did when I was 24 years old. Um, that also opened my eyes to what we are getting wrong about the heart disease problem and uh, how we... You know, first of all, we don't focus on what we eat. We don't think, and when I say we, I mean the medical system, right. doesn't think it's a particularly relevant part of the problem. And then when we do give a little bit of focus on what we eat, we give the wrong advice. 
you know, we tell people to avoid fat in the diet, specifically saturated fat in the diet. And quite frankly, the evidence just doesn't support that. Um, it never was supported by the evidence uh, when you really take an objective look at it. And then we now have 40 years of, of data. You know, we have been giving that advice here in the United States since 1980. And heart disease isn't getting better. So that tells me we must be focused on the wrong thing. Wow. Uh, did this all start back in the Framingham, the big study, the Framingham study where they, they found cholesterol in the arteries and they, they said that's the problem and then the whole fat thing happened, what, in around 1990, low fat, and, and was this how it all started? Yeah, so it actually even goes back a little further than that. Uh, but but the Framingham uh, study has been uh, one of the major um, uh, one of the major things that has shaped our understanding about heart disease. Uh, but again, a lot of that data has been uh, misconstrued and misinterpreted. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we can go back to uh, the early, you know, kind of you know around the 1990s. Um, the actual lead investigator of Framingham uh, admitted that, you know, dietary cholesterol um, is not the primary driver of heart disease. But yet that's the message that has spread. Um, And, you know, there is, so the diet heart hypothesis, it's called, um, was really put forth in the 1950s and it was championed by a uh, scientist by the name of Ansel Keys. And basically what happened was, you know, we had a, our sitting president uh, had a heart attack while in office, you know. Eisenhower, right? Eisenhower? Eisenhower, exactly. And that set off alarm bells as, as it probably should. You know, we had been noticing for a while at that point that the incidence of heart disease was rising. Uh, President Eisenhower has a heart attack in office. And Ansel Keys, uh, you know, basically um, puts forth his theory that eating saturated fat um, in particular is leading to increased levels of cholesterol in our bloodstream. And those increased levels of cholesterol in the bloodstream then put people at high risk for having heart attacks. And, you know, this was put forth as a hypothesis, as a, as a theory, um, you know, realizing that all things in science and medicine start as theories, and then you need to prove that they are true or not true. Um, we never really got to the proving that this was true. <laughs> it was just accepted, essentially, because wow. it makes, you know, it at sense. some level, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, you know, when you look at the plaque that occur in people's arteries that block up their arteries when you you know look at them under a microscope they have cholesterol in them they have a bunch of other things in them but they have cholesterol in them so you know logically you say okay you're eating cholesterol it goes into your bloodstream it ends up in these plaques that makes sense the issue is it doesn't you know the science ends up not supporting this um, so it's really, um, we've never been able to demonstrate a clear relationship between the amount of cholesterol or, you know, it really morphed into saturated fat in the diet, um, leading to heart disease directly. Uh, Ansel Keys had put together a study, you know, that he published 
uh, purporting to show this. Um, it's called the six country study. And then there was a seven country study that came after that. And what he did was he, you know, basically graphed out um, the amount of saturated fat that countries were eating on a population level and the amount of heart disease that uh, they have. And he purported to show a, a linear relationship, a nice straight line. The problem was um, Ansel Keys had data from 22 countries and he handpicked six countries that line up. Really? But he, when you graph out all the 22 countries, there's no relationship. You run into something, a country, for instance, like France, at the time had the highest consumption of saturated fat and had one of the lowest incidence of heart disease. Hmm. Um, and, you know, this was later called the French paradox. <laughs> um, but it's not a paradox. It's that the rule is wrong. You know, the theory is wrong. So, um, but this continued to get propagated and it got picked up on. And then, as you said, you know, we fast forward to the 1980s and the 1990s. And, they and we have all... Yep, all of this low-fat food recommendations, um, and it turns out that that is basically making the problem worse. Wow! Because when you take when you take fat out of food, you need to replace it with something, and it basically gets replaced with sugar and carbohydrates. And it turns out that sugar and carbohydrates are really what is causing the damage. Uh, and so, um, we've basically you know taken what the exact opposite approach and again the data you know the large experience now shows this because we've been giving this advice for 40 years um the amount of saturated fat that we eat here in the united states has gone down since 1970 hmm. and our incidence of heart disease has been essentially unchanged um there was a small drop that occurred from about 1980 to about 2000 um, related to people smoking less, which is another major risk factor for heart disease. Um, and then since 2000, the incidence has leveled off. And actually since 2010 now, it's going back up. It's getting worse again. Well, well you know, when you use the term heart disease, it's really not a disease. It's you're eating the wrong food. That's the disease, right? It's a man-made disease, essentially. We've yeah. created our own problem. You know, one of my uh, one of my favorite sayings, and and I can't really figure out who said this originally, but um, you know, the saying goes that man is the only species smart enough to make its own food and dumb enough to eat it. <laughs> um, you know, we've gotten away from eating the natural foods. Uh, that we survived on and we thrived on for millions of years as human beings and realized that heart disease was essentially undescribed. It was a very rare condition uh, prior to uh, around 1900. And that's when we started, you know, processing more of our food. And more away more carbohydrates and, and less meat and Yep, back. exactly. Uh, but, exactly. But just the idea of disease, I think, is a kind of a challenge because it kind of uh, intuits or tries to argue that there's something in the body that is disease that's causing the problem, but that's just not true. They're just eating the wrong food. Is That's correct, right? There's no disease. It doesn't exist except the diet. 
Right, exactly. Okay. The, the disease is caused by the diet, essentially. Um, but yes, there is not some intrinsic defect in, your uh, heart. in the body. Yeah. Right. Which is important, I think, because I've heard people say, you know, well, I have heart disease. And I question that. And I say, well, what does that mean? Well, they don't know. Somebody just told them they have heart disease. And I think it's it's challenging. And it's important that you hear people like you say that. You don't have anything wrong with your body. There's nothing wrong with it causing your heart to clog up. Yeah. And, you know, the other important uh, concept there is that this is something that we can control. We can prevent Uh, And I think that's the other thing that gets lost in this narrative. Heart disease has become so common that we accept it as normal and inevitable. You get heart disease and you get this age or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. right, right. Everyone gets heart disease. So, you know, what can we, you know, we can't do anything about it. And therefore, the best approach becomes, well, we're just going to manage the disease we're going to give you medications, we're going to do surgery, we're going to put stents in, you know, we're going to manage the disease. Um, And we don't talk about, we should be preventing the disease, we should be reversing the disease um, by addressing the root cause of the problem. And the medications, the surgery, the stents, they don't address the root cause of the problem. Hmm. And therefore, they have no hope of you know, truly avoiding the disease, reversing the disease, or preventing it from getting worse. We're just managing the symptoms. And and that, you know, unfortunately become commonplace in our medical system. We have become so focused on taking care of sick people that we have lost sight of preventing people from getting sick in the first place. Mm. So that's why I challenge people to take back control of their health. I tell people, you can't rely on your doctor, you can't rely on the government to make you healthy, to keep you healthy. It's up to you, the individual, to take control of your health, invest in your health, figure out what you need to do to prevent disease from occurring in the first place or reverse disease wherever possible. And oftentimes it is possible to reverse disease we just don't get that message from the medical system. Interesting. So the old saying go, goes, the uh, the cure is in the cause, right? Exactly. The, yeah, the, yeah, the cure is in the cause. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Philip Ovedia, Ovedia right? Uh, MD, a cardiac surgeon. So um, let's talk about the basics of. So uh, let me let me ask this. So in medical school. To this day, they're still being taught this Ansel Key stuff, right, from 50 years ago. And they're still be, being taught that, that cholesterol is a problem, and then they give statin drugs to lower cholesterol, and all evidence is that that's a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah, you know, what I would say about, you know, uh, lowering cholesterol with medication is it's at best ineffective. At um, best and ineffective. in many cases... Yeah, at best ineffective. And, you know, there are concerns about, you know, what are the side effects of doing this? Uh, like any medication, you know, there's going to be benefits and there's going to be side effects. And you need to balance those. And if the benefits outweigh the risk, the side effects, then it makes sense to, you know, use that treatment. Um, but when we look at, um, you know, cholesterol lowering medications, 
what we see, first of all, is that the benefits have been largely overstated. Um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies use advertising, you know, they basically use marketing techniques um, to push these uh, interventions. And um, the long-term effects of being on these medications really, you know, don't get studied effectively and are probably understated. Um, but again, you know, what I go back to is they're not addressing the root cause of the problem. So we can't really even expect them to, you know, be terribly right. uh, effective because they're they're addressing a downstream problem. You know, is cholesterol part of the process that ultimately leads to heart disease? Yes, it is part of the process, um, but it's downstream in the process. And so, by addressing a downstream problem, you know, you're you're going to have you're going to get ineffective results. And that's largely what we see. Yes, sir. Um, you know. Well, what so, I don't understand, uh, excuse me for interrupting, but what I don't understand is how someone I mean, with your education and knowledge could even say there could be some benefits from a statin. If cholesterol is not the problem, how could there possibly be a benefit from lowering cholesterol? I don't understand that. Yeah, so, you know, there's a very small benefit in some situations, uh, and um, it's not even entirely clear that those benefits come from lowering the cholesterol. One of the interesting things about statins is that they actually have other effects besides lowering cholesterol. Uh, they have anti-inflammatory properties, uh, to be specific, and, uh, you know, much of the... Uh, much of the small benefit that we see from using statins probably, you know, comes from the anti-inflammatory as opposed to the lowering of cholesterol. Um, if you are not going to address the underlying problem, and so just to be clear, the thing that starts the process of heart disease is damage to our blood vessels. Yes. And that damage can come from a number of places. Let's talk smoking, about the, the, the main reasons for damaging the yep. blood vessels. Um, so, you know, smoking uh, is damaging to the blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And so that's a main drive, a main, you know, a big risk factor for heart disease, we know. Uh, but high blood sugar mm -hmm. is another thing that damages the blood vessel wall. And this is probably the most important um, driver of heart disease. Uh, so uh, we have we can develop a condition that we call insulin resistance and you know this gets pretty complex That's but right. to try and make it uh simple you know insulin people probably are familiar with uh they've heard about it for you know people with diabetes uh but one of the things that insulin does in our bodies is it lowers our the amount of sugar in our blood too much sugar in our blood is toxic it can damage our blood vessel walls and have other effects. So the body makes insulin to bring the sugar down. Over time, if you are bringing in too much sugar to the system, if you're constantly eating sugar and carbohydrates, which get converted to sugar, and your body has to make more and more insulin to try and bring that blood sugar level down, um, the cells will stop responding to the insulin. And this is a condition we call insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, it turns out, is a major risk factor for heart disease. 
when you look at all the studies that have been done over the years uh, and you compare the risk of heart disease that comes with being insulin resistant versus the risk of heart disease that comes with having a high cholesterol level, um, there's, you know, it, it's much more powerful. It's a much greater risk factor uh, with insulin resistance than with high cholesterol. To give some numbers to, you know, so people have an idea, mm -hmm. um, the risk of someone with a elevated LDL cholesterol, what we've all been told is bad cholesterol, and I'm not a big fan of that term, but we'll use it for right now. Okay. Um, if someone has a high LDL cholesterol level, their risk of developing heart disease versus someone that has a normal LDL cholesterol level is about 1.4 times higher. If you look at someone that has insulin resistance, versus someone who doesn't have insulin resistance, their risk of developing heart disease is 10 times wow. higher. Wow. So it is a much bigger problem to be insulin resistant than the cholesterol. Now, hmm. the problem is, is we don't really have a medication that fixes insulin resistance. The way to fix insulin resistance is to change your diet. Stop eating carbohydrates, stop eating sugar, stop eating processed food. Um, but if you're not going to do that, um, there may be a little bit of benefit from addressing the cholesterol problem. Um, but what I ra would rather see people do is let's address the insulin resistance. And oh, by the way, the insulin resistance also ends up taking care of the cholesterol problem. Oh, it, does. it turns out, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not all cholesterol that's problematic. It's only damaged cholesterol that's really problematic. And the one, the main thing that damages our cholesterol is insulin resistance. Wow! So that's so. all. That's how it's all tied together. And I, I've I've heard that then the insulin that's circulating around because of so much too many carbs and sugar. Carbs are, are our sugar, right? Let's just call them carbohydrate. Uh, carbs yep. are sugar that it damages the the blood vessels, uh, inflames them, can damage them, and then the cholesterol comes in to patch them up. So if you didn't have enough cholesterol, you could actually spring a leak. Um, no? Yeah, you know, uh, not really spring a leak, <laughs> but um, there are there are problems. So cholesterol plays many vital roles in our body, mm. ultimately. You know, realize that we only discuss cholesterol in the context of heart disease, um, but cholesterol makes up, uh, you know, our cells. It literally makes up the walls of our cells uh, cholesterol plays a part in the immune system uh, cholesterol is very important for brain health mm. and so you know there's reason to be concerned if we're you know trying to eliminate cholesterol from our bodies essentially uh, that that's going to have uh, negative implications over time yes sir um, and cholesterol being lowered to where they do with statins 120 130 140 evidence shows that you can't make enough testosterone, right? With with the one forty or one fifty, and then you can't, you know, Mister Happy's not happy, and then they give them uh, whatever some drug, whatever they, what's that one they use all the all the time? Um, uh, Viagra, Viagra, the right. little blue pill, yeah, the little yeah. blue pill. It's crazy what's going on. Yeah, and again, this is something that we see oftentimes in our medical system. Oh, yeah. You know, we use. We, we rely on medications um, that 
treat the symptoms, but don't address the root cause of a problem. Those medications can then end up having their own side effects. And then we layer more medications on to take care of the side effects. Fix that one. Um, Wow. And instead, you know, we need to get back to addressing root causes of problems. Um, And, you know, and, and as I said earlier, people need to be questioning their doctors on this. They need to take charge of their health. Uh, they need to be asking when they've started on a medication, you know, what, what's our plan here? Am I just going to be on this medication for the rest of our li- uh, rest of my life? Is there something else I can be doing to address the problem? Because in most cases, the answer is yes, there is something else you can and should be doing. Um, you know, medications can be helpful for acute problems. You and if you develop an infection, certainly take an antibiotic uh, that's going to deal with that infection. Uh, but for chronic medical problems, things like diabetes and heart disease, um, medications are only addressing the symptoms. They're not addressing the root cause of the problem. But isn't one of the challenges uh, in the medical field that a cardiologist that you might go to, aren't they compelled to do the standard of care, which is an order you've got to put people on statins if they have a cholesterol level of a certain, I mean, how does a doctor deal with that? They, they get in trouble if they want to do stuff like you're talking about, don't they, or do they? Well, you know, there is that issue uh, because the guidelines that have been passed by medical societies, um, you know, for instance, um, you know, for the management of, of heart disease, uh, are that if you have a cholesterol level above a certain level, you're supposed to prescribe a statin. Now, understand what the guidelines actually say is, you know, you're supposed to have a discussion with the patient uh. about the risks and benefits. And you're supposed to do what's called shared decision making, which mm-hmm. means that the patient has a role in deciding whether or not they want to take that medication, you know, based on the risks and the benefits of taking the medication and not taking the medication. But, you know, all too often we uh, doctors skip that part because they need to skip that part uh, because they're in a system where, you know, they only have limited time. They have 15 minutes, you know, for a typical medical appointment these days. And this discussion is very complex. You know, you and I have been talking about this now for uh, close to half an hour, and we've really only scratched the we, surface. Exactly, uh, and I'm they, asking good questions, you know, and most people, God love them, they don't they they don't know these questions to even ask. Right? Exactly, and for most doctors and for most people, it's easier just to check the box, write the prescription, and say this is going to take care of the problem. But it's not going to take care of the problem. Um, ultimately, you know. Uh, many people, many, many people, I would say most of the people that I end up operating on have been following their doctor's advice. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, there are people who don't, you know, don't see doctors, don't follow doctor's advice. Um, but, you know, many of the people I operate on are following their doctor's advice. They've been taking the medications for many, many years. They've been eating the low-fat diet for many, many years. And yet they're still ending up with advanced heart disease. And, you know, as a medical system, we just kind of throw our hands up and then say, oh, well, you know, it must be genetics. It must be something else. You know, Uh, it was unavoidable. 
but the reality is it is we didn't pay attention to the right problem we didn't educate people properly and if you do pay attention to the right things uh you can avoid heart disease i i firmly believe and you know the evidence that i've seen now working with people on this is that heart disease is very very preventable in the vast majority of cases it's preventable and if you diagnose it early enough if you're looking for the right sign you can stop it at its early stages so it doesn't advance to the point of having a heart attack needing a stent needing bypass surgery interesting and we're going to uh, we have to do a break and we'll get into diet more more specifically but just before that to tease people if somebody has some plaque buildup because of a bad diet and they change have you seen it decrease and get better well um so i've seen it uh i i you know consistently see it stop getting worse hmm. and that's the main thing um in some cases we do see some improvement we typically can't undo all of the damage that's there but but we can see some improvement but what's important though is just stop it from getting worse uh, because that is going to be enough, again, in the vast majority of cases, if you don't already have advanced heart disease, then just stop it from getting worse, and you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Heart surgeon Dr. Philip Ovidia, Patrick Timpone, One Radio Network. Sir, stay right there. We're going to take a little break and promote a couple products. If you have a question, you can uh, call 888-663-6386, email Patrick oneradionetwork.com. We don't do a lot of supplementation pretty much here. We talk about food as the doc is, but this is one, it's a mineral that we think is very beneficial. And uh, uh, here we'll talk about it a little bit, talk about it. Dr. Patrick Flanagan has been regarded as one of the most important scientists in the last 50 years. We talked to him about sulfur. There's a product called organic sulfur. And organic sulfur uh, was put into trade in 1865 as organic sulfur. Some people call it MSM or methyl sulfonylmethane, but most of the MSM in health food stores uh, have been contaminated with a kind of silica that prevents its absorption by the body. But anyway, what happens is that if you take a, a... a tablespoon of MSM and uh, of the organic sulfur in hot water in the morning and a tablespoon in the afternoon, uh, it, ca- it sulfates 192 different compounds, uh, heavy metals from the periodic table. And, and once it sulfates them, I'm talking about radioactive elements and other things, once it sulfates them, uh, these uh, sulfates cannot stay in, in the uh, human body for more than 12 hours. And what Dr. Flanagan just mentioned is one of the key reasons why our sulfur is different from most out there, Amazon, no matter where you go, because it's pure. Click and order, front page, oneradionetwork.com. Would you like a discount? Just email me, four pounds or more, a discount, Patrick at oneradionetwork.com. Otherwise, two-pound orders, United States, Canada, worldwide, three prices. Click and order, oneradionetwork.com. Previously with Stephanie Seneff, PhD, research scientist with MIT on her work with glyphosates, GMO, and sulfur. I know you really care about sulfur, and so do I. You know, I really think sulfur is crucial 
for health and that we have a massive problem with sulfur deficiency in this country. Uh, one of the proteins that I found that is disrupted by glyphosate because it has an essential glycine is sulfotransferase. That's a protein that moves sulfate from one molecule to another. But it's really, really important to be able to do that. And why wouldn't it be able to do it? Because the glyphosate disrupts the the natural sulfur cycle in our body? The cell won't be able to defend itself with sulfate if it can't put the sulfate there. And of course, glyphosate chelates sulfurs. A perfect storm in the challenges department, perhaps, but we're getting creative. So we know that we've been low on sulfur for years because of the chemical fertilizers, and now the GMO thing, which is disrupting the sulfur cycle. And we know with sufficient amounts of sulfur in the body, it's the natural way that the body gets these heavy metals, for example, mercury and mercury sulfate, out of the body if we have enough sulfur. Click and order sulfur today on oneradionetwork.com. One of the challenges we humans are facing these days, and you've heard about it, 4G, 5G, coming soon, 6G, God knows what they're doing. And a lot of stories about it, but uh, plenty of research to say that these things are detrimental to our health. Uh, We've done shows over the years that can even show, get this, that the uh, energy in the wires in your home, which is called dirty electricity, affects the cholesterol level. Uh, um, Magda Havas up in Canada did that work. So these electric things, we are electric beings, and they can they can kind of get us, you know, a little wonky. and, uh, you know, be challenging for us. We have a, a culture or a, a, a system that we've been promoting uh, called Blue Shield, and it actually works on the cells in the body and helps the body to better deal with cell phone towers and, and Wi-Fis and things like that. It doesn't block it. And here's Brandon to tell you about it. And it's been used on animals uh, and to, to a great benefit, so the placebo effect is thrown out the window. Listen. Previously, we talked with Brandon Amalani about his Blue Shield product to protect against EMFs in your home. The, the more connected we are, the more electromagnetic radiation we're going to have. So years ago, I'd play with Q-Links and just anything I can get my hands on that whether I felt it working or not, I just wanted some kind of leverage against electromagnetic radiation and those frequencies and how they affect the cellular biology. But then when I met Mark and started really getting deep to his technology and really looking at the microprocessing technology, I've never found any any EMF company that would not only to test on not only human blood and urine analysis, but also on animals, which totally weeds out the idea of placebo effect. I mean, the fact that you can plug these devices into a chicken farm, a factory farm for about 15,000 laying hens, and all of a sudden the mortality rate, which is averages from 60 to 150 deaths per month, goes down to zero. I mean, it's pretty profound that a, a little device, a little energy device could actually like create such a harmony and balance within the the environment to where claustrophobic chickens that are crammed in together actually get along better and actually feel better and, and oh. the the you know the biological markers are improved over that one year study. There's quite a bit of science with this Blue Shield product. You can see the ad on the front page. Promo code one radio will get you a ten percent discount. This works on the cells in the body. Very cool technology. Front page Blue Shield One Radio Network.com Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Having an interesting conversation with heart surgeon Philip Ovedia. His book is called Stay Off My Operating Table. I love the title. That just 
just terrific. When did you write the book? When did it come out? Uh, the book came out in November of 2021, so it's been out uh, uh-huh. over a year now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a uh, bestseller. It has uh, won awards, uh, and huh. I'm really, uh, really happy that this information is getting into the hands of the people that need it, because unfortunately, they're not getting this information largely from their doctors and from the medical system. Because to this day, this information is not being taught at medical schools, right? It just isn't, is it? Correct, yeah. Wow. There is very little focus on preventative health and uh, diet and nutrition and lifestyle issues in medical school these days. How is that possible? I mean, this is the belly of the beast, to the, the cardiac doctors, right? And they're not being taught the right thing. I mean, that seems like such a disconnect, Dr. Veda. I just, wow. Yeah, I think the reality is is that, you know, our system has become overwhelmed uh, with taking care of sick people. Mm. Um, and therefore, doctors doctors just don't have the time, largely, to, um, first of all, educate themselves uh, to be able to help patients in this way, and then to, to spend that time with the patient. You know, as we discussed earlier, mm. you know, the average medical visit is about 15 minutes these days. It's much quicker to write the prescription than to have these detailed discussions about, um, you know, what you should be eating and what you should be doing in your life. Um, and, you know, that that was one of the motivating factors for me to write the book, uh, because, you know, I, ca- I can only work with so many people one on one. I do have a private telemedicine practice where I do work with people one on one on these issues. Um, but you know, that is uh, limited in scale, obviously. So right. writing the book was a way to get this information to people, uh, uh, to have that um, long-form conversation, sort of as it is, uh, to be able to discuss these issues and to be able to introduce these issues to people. What kind of uh, reaction or interaction have you had with, with cardiologists who have been taught just the opposite? Um, are they open to it, and you talk to them about it, or you go to do you, do you, um, give seminars on it and things like that. Yeah, so you know it's mixed. I would say mm-hmm. there are a lot of doctors waking up to this problem. There mm-hmm. are a lot of doctors who are disappointed with the results that we are getting in the medical system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I go to conferences now with you know like-minded physicians, physicians who are open to this. I see. Um, but you know that's a challenge um, for a physician uh, to admit uh, that they have been doing the wrong thing essentially <laughs> right. for a, a long challenge. time. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I needed to admit that. You know, and I have admitted that. Um, and I think you know I would like physicians to be more open to doing that uh, because I think that is part of being a good physician. Um, it's interesting. You know, there's a uh, saying that you hear over and over during medical school, and and all doctors have heard this, you know. And the saying goes that half of what you learn in medical school is going to be proven to be wrong by the time you finish your career. We just don't know which half. You know, <laughs> that's the nature. That's the nature of science. It's always evolving. We should be able to challenge ideas. Um, now, again, we have a modern environment these days that discourages that. 
in many ways. Um, doctors are discouraged from, you know, sure. questioning sure. the mainstream narrative. Uh, and so that is a problem. Uh, that is going to become a bigger problem, I believe, because, you know, again, we can look back over the history of medicine and we can see many, many things that were gotten wrong. You know, many medications that ended up having to be pulled off the market because uh, they were harming more than they were benefiting. Um, many concepts around health that, you know, we got wrong. You know, you look back at uh, things like uh, lobotomies being commonplace, um, you know, and um, the doctors at that time thought they were doing the right thing, um, you know, and but over time, we start to question these ideas and um, the science changes and our practice of medicine changes. And so if you're not able to do that as a physician, if you're not able to step back and ultimately say, you know, I am disappointed with the results that I am getting. Um, and this is what spurred me, you know, I was disappointed with the results that I personally was getting regarding my health. And I was disappointed with what I was seeing in front of me, more and more patients, younger and younger, showing up with heart disease, needing, you know, these procedures, having to repeat the procedures because you would do a surgery and then they would get more heart disease and they would need more procedures done. And, uh, you know, I was ultimately not satisfied with that. And that's what led me to start asking these questions. And I think more and more doctors need to be honest with themselves and say, are we really getting the results that we want for our patients? And if we're not, we need to start asking why. Yes, sir. Well, well said. So let's talk about the diet. And so say I'm kind of a patient and you're talking to me. What are, what are, what are the, big, the big items, the low-hanging fruit, you, you get people to change in their diet? Yeah, so the main uh, principle that I try and get people to follow when it comes to their diet is eating real whole food. Um, I tell people to eat the things that grow in the ground and eat the things that eat the things that grow in the ground. Uh, so animal products, uh, plant products, um, you know, eat whole real food is first and foremost. Now, um, very important part of that is that, you know, there has been a lot of messaging uh, around meat and it being harmful for our health. And I want people to understand that that is simply not true. Uh, the evidence does not support those uh, statements. And meat uh, is something that we have been eating for our entire existence as human beings. And there is no reason to think that it is damaging to our health. The reason that it appears when, you know, in some studies, that it might be damaging to our health is because when most people eat meat, they don't eat meat alone. When someone says, I had a hamburger, you know, they had the meat, but they had the toppings and they had the bun and they usually have the French fries with it and they're drinking the Coke, you know, the soda right. with it. Right. And so, you know, you look at people who eat hamburgers more and you say, okay, they're unhealthy. They're, they're more unhealthy than people who don't eat hamburgers, but it's not the hamburger, it's everything they're eating with the burger. Um, so I want people to um, understand that they can and should be eating meat as part of a optimal diet. 
Uh, and, you know, and then beyond that, you know, the key is eliminating processed food. Um, if it comes in a box or a bag, you shouldn't eat it. If your grandparents or your great grandparents wouldn't recognize it as, as food, you shouldn't be eating it. Uh, because these processed foods um, only serve the food, the interests of the food companies, uh, quite frankly. They, you know, get people to eat more food, ultimately. And that is what, you know, has largely led to our problems with obesity, diabetes, and ultimately heart disease. But the idea of carbohydrates is so because we're pretty much a carbohydrate culture, aren't we? Whether it be tortillas or sandwiches or pasta. Look how many people eat pasta or bread or cookies. And, you know. So how is it possible that these carbohydrates are just not good for us? Haven't we been eating these for a long time? Um, no, we really haven't have? when you look at the, you know, on the large scale of evolution. So, you know, for the... Um, you know, millions of years that we have been, you know, existed as human beings, um, we've really been only eating uh, carbohydrates, uh, especially processed carbohydrates, for a very short period of time. You know, agriculture, uh, the growing of crops, you know, was introduced probably about 10,000 years ago. So again, a pretty small blip on the evolutionary scale. And then what we see within the past, you know, 100 to 150 years is when processed food, uh, you know, really, really started in. getting uh, introduced into the food supply in large amounts. And that's when we started seeing all of these diseases uh, explode, you know, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, all of these things have been increasing uh, at, at, at alarming rates uh, for the past, you know, roughly 100 years. What about just good old rice, organic rice, or even organic pasta, just wheat? Are there issues with that as far as the heart? Well, it's going to depend on your situation, to mm. be honest. Once you, have, once you have started that process of becoming insulin resistant, what we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier, yes, um, that basically means that your body can no longer handle carbohydrates properly. Uh. And so if you are insulin resistant, um, carbohydrates in any form should be minimized in the diet. Now, if you're not at that point, if you're, um, you know, or you've overcome it, you've addressed it and you've reversed it, then you might be able to tolerate some carbohydrates in small amounts. Um, but the other part of that, um, you know, equation, the other thing I want things, people to think about is that carbohydrates are in no way essential to the human diet. They aren't. You can live perfectly fine without ever eating a carbohydrate. Uh, and uh, we have many people, you know, many demonstrations of that, uh, both historically and, and you know, today. Um, so you don't need the carbohydrates. Uh, so then you have to start to ask yourself, you know, why am I eating these carbohydrates? Um, and, you know, maybe it makes sense, maybe it doesn't for you. But the first step is you need to make sure that your body is able to properly process those carbohydrates. And for the vast majority of people, the statistics show 
that 88% of the adults in the United States uh, are not in optimal metabolic health and therefore cannot properly process carbohydrates. Are there, are there simple blood tests our listeners, if, they're, if they like pasta and bread, uh, to, to know if they're in that danger zone? Well, what would they look at? Yeah, so um, there are five uh, basic measurements that I usually, you know, have people start with. And these are in the book. Um, if you actually go to my okay. website, ifix, uh, ifixhearts.com, okay. there's a quiz right on the first page that will take you through this um, so you can understand where you are in terms of your metabolic health, we call it. Um, but very simple. Uh, so you start with your waist circumference. Um, take a tape measure, um, measure just above the level of your belly button. Uh, best to do that first thing in the morning. And if you are a man, that number should be under 40 inches. If you were a woman, it should be under 35 inches. The next metric we want to look at, the next measurement we want to look at is your blood pressure. Um, if your blood pressure is over 130 over 85, so the top number is higher than 130, the bottom number is higher than 85, uh, that means that you are not metabolically healthy. And importantly, um, you know, this needs to be measured if you are not, without you being on medications to lower your blood pressure. Yeah, right. If you've already been started on medications to lower your blood pressure, it's a sign that you are not metabolically healthy. And then we want to look at some very basic blood work. You know, most people are going to get this, these numbers checked as part of a routine exam. You want to look at what we call your fasting blood glucose. So this is the amount of sugar that's in your blood when you haven't eaten for about 8 to 12 hours. And you want that number to be less than 100 milligrams per deciliter is the units we use here in the U.S. Um, again, if you've been started on medication to lower your blood sugar, if you've been diagnosed with, with diabetes, uh, another sign that you are not metabolically healthy. And then we are going to look at your cholesterol panel. But interestingly, we are not going to look at the LDL cholesterol that, that your doctor and most people focus so much on. We want to look at two other numbers on that panel. We want to look at the HDL cholesterol, what has been nicknamed good cholesterol. And we call it good cholesterol because we actually want it to be higher. Mm -hmm. This is confusing to people because they're always here about lowering your cholesterol. But HDL cholesterol is a type of cholesterol that you actually want more of. And to be considered metabolically healthy, if you are a man, you need your HDL cholesterol to be more than 40 milligrams per deciliter. And if you are a woman, you need it to be more than 50 milligrams per deciliter. And finally, we're going to look at the triglycerides, another number on your lipid panel. This you do want to be lower, and specifically you want it to be less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. So when we look at those five numbers, like I said, 88% of the adults in the United States do not meet all five measures of optimal wow. metabolic health. They just don't. Um, and they don't. And so you can't assume that you're metabolically healthy. And oftentimes I'll have people say, well, I'm not overweight, so that must mean I'm metabolically healthy. But, you know, in this study uh, that looked at this, um, the people who were a normal weight or underweight, um, 
half of those people were not metabolically healthy. So it's only a 50-50 shot if you are a normal weight. If you're overweight, it's very likely that you are not metabolically healthy. Are you suggesting that if you just have one of the five or two of the five, that you've got to be careful with the amount of carbohydrates and sugar? Yes, I believe so. Because um, when you have three of those five abnormal, you are diagnosed with what we call metabolic syndrome. And that is a medical diagnosis, and it puts you at very high risk of uh, things like diabetes, heart disease, many forms of cancer have been associated with the metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's disease associated with the metabolic syndrome. So three or five being abnormal, you're diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. One or two abnormal, though, is a warning sign because we know people who have one or two of them abnormal today are very likely to progress to the metabolic syndrome uh, over the next few years. So if you have any of those abnormal, that is a sign that you are likely at least on your way to being insulin resistant. You should look into it further. You should find a physician who understands this and can work with you on it. But most likely, you are not going to be able to tolerate sugar and carbohydrate. Here's an email from Nancy. She says, I go into AFib now and then, especially after too many carbs. My glucose is a bit high, and I'm working on that. I was born with a heart murmur. Does that make sense to have AFib after carbohydrates? So, you know, atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal heartbeat that can occur, wow. um, has been um, associated with inflammation in the body. It's one of the things that probably contributes to it. And um, we know that one of the effects of having too high a blood sugar is it causes inflammation. Um, as I said earlier, it damages blood vessel walls and it causes inflammation. And therefore, yes, it can contribute to uh, a condition like atrial fibrillation. Now, on the fasting blood sugar, that's a simple thing just to get a, a blood prick in the morning, right, with a thing you can get at the drugstore. Is that correct? You can do that yourself. Um, yes, you can get a home, um, a home uh, test here for your blood sugar level. And so you can test this at home. You don't need, you know, necessarily need your doctor to order the blood test for you. Uh, but again, I think it is important for people to be working with practitioners, finding physicians who understand this and can help them, you know, kind of work through the process because some of this does get pretty complicated. Um, although I always tell people the answer ends up being simple. It may not be easy, but it's a simple answer. And in the vast majority of cases, if you eat less processed food, you minimize sugar and carbohydrates in your diet, your metabolic health is going to improve. Do you, do you think there's a big difference, in your opinion, of having kind of a processed carbohydrate rather than rice or, well, pasta is processed, but it's just wheat, I guess, on the label. Is there a big difference, you think? Yeah, so um, pasta, bread, these are processed they carbohydrates. Are processed. You know, okay. when I, yeah, when I talk about unprocessed food, we talk about basically Meat. it being in the form that it came out of the ground or, <laughs> you know, that it kind of exists in nature. Right. You know, you can look at it and you can know exactly what it is. Okay. So, um, you know, eating an apple, for instance, is going to be different than drinking apple juice. Um, you know, there's lots of things that go into that. Um, but ultimately, again, you know, if you are metabolically unhealthy, 
carbohydrates in any form, processed or unprocessed, are going to be a problem for you. Uh, so, you know, you really uh, need to figure out where you are to understand how much carbohydrate can I, you know, tolerate. And as I said earlier, also understand that these things are not essential to the human diet. Mm -hmm. uh, we can survive without eating carbohydrates. We probably survive better and we probably thrive most without eating carbohydrates. Uh, so, um the answer is usually eat less carbohydrates in general, but the processed carbohydrates are the ones that are uniquely harmful. Mm. More and more uh, things out there, I guess, it just depends if you're looking for it. I certainly see it in the ketogenic and carnivore world, and most of these people are arguing that fat is almost as important or not even more important than the, than the meat itself. Is that possible? Well, you know, so um, there are only two places ultimately that we can get energy from, that our bodies can process for energy, and that's going to be fat or carbohydrates. Wow. So if you're not eating carbohydrates, you need to be getting enough fat uh, to make energy. Hmm. Now, most of us are walking around with plenty of stored energy in the form <laughs> of body fat. Right. Um, so uh, there are some advantages to, you know, burning that energy uh, and maybe eating less dietary fat in that situation. Uh, but ultimately, yes, um, you know, you, you can't survive on protein alone, which is basically what you're left with, you know, if you take out fat and carbohydrates. Uh, so again, in fat, is essential to the human diet if you were to somehow eat zero fat which is almost impossible but if you were to somehow do that um, you would not survive long term hmm. um, if you eat zero protein you are not going to survive long term um, you can survive long term by eating zero carbohydrates uh, and, and that's a very important concept for people to understand and the fat i guess would would have to would want to be animal fat and not oils because they have their own issues the seed oils and the canola and all that right that we can talk about but uh, the fat would be fatty meats and uh, what eggs uh, butter cheese um, what else raw milk if you can get raw milk and yeah yeah all of the above all um, the above you know animal animal fats should not be feared and again <laughs> this is another part of the messaging that is just wrong. Uh, the fact that we should be avoiding, um, you know, natural fats that occur in meat, uh, which includes saturated fats, uh, is wrong. What we should be avoiding is the processed fats, like you talked about, the vegetable and the seed oil, mm. um, which do not occur in nature. Um, you know, ironically, they don't even really come from vegetables. That was uh, essentially a marketing term to call them vegetable oils. Uh, and these are highly processed and they're toxic to our bodies. And again, we have more and more evidence of this. Um, so, um, no, you know, they should not be consumed and they are a large component of processed food. You know, again, if you're just eating things that occur in nature, you're not going to be getting vegetable and seed oils. You know, you can get some fat from things like, you know, avocados, let's say, or, Bunny. you know, coconut or, you know, um, you know, so you can get some fat from plant products. Uh, but I agree that, you know, again, 
our bodies evolved to process animal products and animal fats, and there's no reason we should be avoiding them in our diet. And I think it's evident that if you go into the, you know, the middle part of any grocery store, you know, the middle part, that almost everything in there has some kind of a seed oil in there, canola oil, soybean oil, uh, whatever. And these, it's proven, these seed, they're dangerous, aren't they? I mean, they are not good for us, not good. Yeah, we certainly know that since they've been introduced into the food supply, our health is worsened. Uh, There are some very concerning uh, studies that have been done around the vegetable and seed oil. Uh, there have been uh, randomized controlled studies, what are called, you know, sort of the gold standard <laughs> of, uh, of uh, you know, medical studies that have been that have shown that if you s- increase the consumption of these processed oils, um, all cause mortality goes up. So, again, in other words, people die uh, more when you feed them more of these products. Uh, so, do we know the me- mechanism for these seed oils, the canolas, and all of the rest of them, sunflower oil, and um, and the heart and the and the arteries? Yeah. So these um, oils uh, contain larger amounts of what are called polyunsaturated fat, and polyunsaturated fats are an unstable fat. Uh, they can be easily damaged, uh, and you know, people can understand this because if you leave a bottle of canola oil, you know, open on your counter and it's exposed to air, um, it's very quickly going to go rancid, go bad. And that's basically, you know, the oil gets damaged. It gets what we call oxidized. Well, this same thing can occur within our bodies. Um, and um, these polyunsaturated fats, again, in high concentrations like this, uh, our bodies are not used to, you know, we didn't evolve eating these foods uh, in this way. And so these polyunsaturated fats, our body can't process them fully. They get basically stuck uh, in our cell membranes and they are unstable and they can get oxidized. And specifically, you know, when this occurs within cholesterol molecules and the cholesterol molecule becomes oxidized that is then what allows it to uh you know become part of the plaques that form in our arteries you talked about damaged cholesterol which is oxidized and we know that well we believe that oxidation is really a key factor in anything disease right oxidation yeah, exactly. You know, people hear uh, all the time, you know, we're talk- we're uh, you know, talking about supplements and foods that contain antioxidants. Antioxidants. Uh, so that they help to undo this oxidation damage. Uh, now, I would rather we don't get the oxidation damage in the first place, and if you eat whole real food, you're largely going to avoid oxidation, so you don't necessarily need the antioxidants then. Uh, but, you know, oxidation is an important part of many of the disease processes that we see. Uh, again, heart disease, uh, cancer is oftentimes uh, related to uh, oxidation um, and, uh, you know, probably things like Alzheimer's disease as well. So um, they all, again, they all kind of circle back to uh, this concept of metabolic health 
and uh, remaining metabolically healthy is the best way to lower your risk of all of these diseases. And more and more, more and more evidence and talk about this idea of of uh, Alzheimer's and these dementia things, which are rampant, is really, uh, I believe, it's been talked about as like diabetes of the brain, where they just they've got too much sugar and not enough fat. Exactly. So, you know, Alzheimer's, as you said, has been called type 3 diabetes or Mm. diabetes of the brain. And um, it seems to be related to uh, this damage uh, that occurs, uh, similar to the damage that occurs in our blood vessels uh, leading to heart disease. There is damage to the cells of the brain, brain. to the neurons um, that, you know, are leading to things like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, So, we know, for instance, again, people who are insulin resistant, uh, we mentioned earlier that they're 10 times more likely to develop heart disease. We also know that they are more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease, more likely to develop many forms of cancer, um, again, related to the metabolic syndrome. And so while I spend most of my time focusing on that top cause of death, heart disease, um, when you go down through the top 10 causes of death in the United States every year, seven of the 10 of them have been associated with insulin resistance wow. and uh, the metabolic syndrome. Seven so out of 10. It turns, oh, seven out of 10. So it turns out when you're um, you know, addressing um, heart disease, you're also lowering your risk of all these other diseases as well. Uh, uh, Derek is from uh, North, North Dakota. And enjoying the show, I, I'm vegetarian. Does your guest think I can get all the fat that I need from coconut oil? That's a vegetarian. That's, but it, no cholesterol there, but not that that matters. What do you think? Cholesterol, uh, coconut oil? Yeah, so, you know, coconut oil, I, you know, I think is a healthy fat to consume. Um, you know, my concerns around vegetarian diet uh, is that um, you cannot, there are certain essential nutrients that you cannot get from plants. Um, and uh, vitamin B12 is very important. Um, it's difficult to get uh, enough protein from plants. Um, and, uh, you know, the types of fats uh, uh, are, again, difficult to get. You know, coconut oil is an okay fat to consume. Um, olive oil is an okay fat to consume if it is pure olive oil, which again, can be very deal. difficult to yeah, get. Yeah. yeah, the real deal mm-hmm. uh, can be very difficult to get here in the United States. Um, so, you know, I worry uh, and I caution people, you know, on vegetarian and vegan diets that you have to be very careful. You have to plan very well. Uh, and you're ultimately going to have to take supplements because you, there are certain, uh, you know, nutrients, certain amino acids that you simply cannot get from plant products. Okay. Um, if you're willing, if you're willing to incorporate eggs into a vegetarian diet, which many people are, uh, you know, butter, eggs, uh, maybe you know some seafood, um, you know, which uh, a lot aren't, but some are. Uh, you can start to make up for some of these deficiencies. Um, but again, ultimately, you need to realize that human beings evolved eating meat and we're designed to eat meat. And um, while I work with people, you know, vegetarian and, and vegan diets that avoid processed food are certainly going to be healthier sure. than the standard American diet. Um, I don't believe them to be ideal, ultimately. 
Do you think the eggs and, and seafood play a, a good role in good metabolic health? Well, I think they can. You know, there certainly uh, can be an important part of a metabolically healthy diet. Um, but ultimately, as I said, I think uh, meat is uh, an essential food for human beings, and we shouldn't be avoiding it. Hmm. A um, couple more, then we'll let you go back to work. When does a mitral, mitral, M-I-T-R-A-L valve need to be replaced? Is there any treatment for a faulty valve other than replacement? My uh, electrocardiogram 2008 showed my mitral valve was misshapen. My 2002 cardio echo, echogram showed I have mild mitral regurgitation. I have atrial fibrillation and now have a ischemic stroke, oh, in 2022, last month. So am I correct in my thinking that the mitral valve replacement is a major surgery? Any ideas on that? Yeah, so, and of course, uh, you know, usual cautions here that we're not I'm giving not uh, medical specific advice. medical right. advice. Um, so in general, um, when uh, mitral valves are leaking a lot, um, you, typically what we call severe, uh, mitral regurgitation, which means the valve is leaking a lot. Um, it needs to be addressed. Um, you can replace the valve. Uh, in many situations, the valve can be repaired surgically. And uh, today we actually have newer uh, techniques working with catheters that can uh, help to uh, repair the valve as well. Uh, so, you know, I would say important to uh, talk to a physician, uh, uh, you know, go see a cardiologist, a heart surgeon to discuss options there. Um, but oftentimes, if it's just a mild leakage, that doesn't need to be addressed. It just needs to be monitored to make sure it's not getting worse. Oftentimes, you hear people say um, they had a heart issue and the doctor told them their arteries were like 90% blocked. How could they even be, you know, even people that are running uh, marathons and then they said, they, how could they... How could how could you keep going with ninety percent block? Do you think these these numbers are overstated? Um, no, you know this is the amazing uh, kind of uh, design machine uh, evolution, whatever you want to call it, of the human body. You know we have an amazing capacity uh, to deal with this damage. Honestly, we can do a lot of damage to our bodies before it becomes uh, apparent. And before you know, we start having symptoms, or before it becomes a life-threatening problem, and that's a that's a blessing and a curse, you know, in many ways, because oftentimes we ignore the problem and we don't do a good job of diagnosing the problem in their early stages, uh, because we're feeling good still, or at least we you know we perceive that we feel good. Uh, so yeah, it's not uncommon that people have blockages that can be that severe and not know about it. If the blockages uh, build up slowly enough, the body actually starts to form its own bypasses. Uh, so I, I, I've heard that. Uh, so that's true. Yeah. The body will do that. Wow. The, the body will do that. You'll start to form new blood vessels basically around the blockages on your own. Now, oftentimes those are, may not be adequate uh, to deal with the amount of blood flow that you need, uh, but it can, you know, kind of delay uh, the the uh, you know the heart attack uh, or the damage to the uh, hmm. muscle um, 
as opposed to if a blood vessel blocked up all of a sudden, which can happen as well, uh, you know, the body can't deal with that as well. And that's when, you know, that's typically what happens when we have a heart attack is that you have a sudden blockage of one of these blood vessels. Um, you know, I have people uh, who will end up, you know, coming to me and they have blood vessels on their heart that are completely blocked, 100% blocked. Wow. And have been that way for many years. And they had no idea uh, because it just occurred slowly enough uh, that the body was able to deal with it. Wow, pretty fascinating. The body's that cool, gonna figure it out, right? Yeah, gonna keep you alive. We'll just grow new ones. We'll just. Well, that's exactly it. You know, a lot of health comes down to if we just stop doing damage to our bodies. <laughs> it'll, it'll our come. bodies are amazing things that can heal themselves in many ways. But you have to stop doing the damage. And one of the main ways that we damage our bodies today is with the foods that we eat. Here's a fun question for you before we go. Joe says, I like to visit Italy and they eat pasta every day, sometimes twice a day. What is the what is their heart a disease rate in Italy? Hmm. Um, yeah, so um, Italy, you know, is probably about middle of the line. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there are many there are many um, things about the Italian diet, you know, we look at them when we say they eat pasta every day. Uh, but, you know, when they eat it, uh, first of all, it's typically, um, you know, kind of homemade. Uh, so it's minimally processed, at least. It's not as processed as the stuff that we tend to get here in the United States. Right. They eat it in small amounts. You know, it's a little it's bit little. of a side dish as opposed to the big bowl of pasta that we eat here. And, you know, they have many other uh, healthier habits than we have. Uh, and so uh, their their risk of heart disease, you know, ends up being less. I mean, the United States has more heart disease than any country in the, in the world. Um, and it's, you know, largely based on the foods we eat. Uh, but we also have many other unhealthy habits. You know, we don't walk enough. Uh, we don't get enough activity throughout our day. We uh, have, you know, too much stress. We don't sleep well. We don't have a good uh, sense of community. Um, we eat too often and we eat too much. Um, yeah. And so, you know, in a lot of these countries where you would look at them and you'd say, oh, well, the French are eating all these bread and pastries. Um, but they're not doing that, you know, 10 times a day like we oftentimes do here <laughs> in the United States. You know, the, the um, statistics show that the average American consumes calories of some sort and this includes calories that we drink another major problem uh for our health uh, but they consume calories basically eight to ten times a day and so that never uh gives your body the chance to recover from eating that food um as opposed to you know if you eat once or twice a day even if you're eating foods that are less than ideal if you're only doing it once or twice a day, at least you're giving your body a chance to sort of recover from that. Mm -hmm. So we have this problem in the United States particularly. And again, processed food largely contributes to this because one of the features of processed food is it makes you more hungry. It makes you want to eat more. This is why the food companies love processed food because you go back and you want to eat more. You know, the old saying about the potato chips that bet you can't eat just one um, came about because they know you can't eat just one because that food is specifically engineered to make you more hungry. Um, yeah. And uh, so these, you know, it's not as simple as looking at something like pasta and saying, well, you know, 
they eat pasta, you know, in Italy and they eat rice, you know, here. So it must be okay to eat it. Um, it it's the whole picture that we need to be looking at. I think in Italy too, they have a lot of good fat and uh, um, a lot yep. of family. And it it's really good when you sit around and have a nice family and have a meal that helps digest about anything, you know. I think. Yeah, and, and largely they're eating, you know, minimally processed and seafood. Food. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the sauce is, is, is freshly made at home. You know, they're eating meats. They're eating vegetables out of their gardens. You know, they're not eating uh, processed food that comes in boxes. Well, you've been a real uh, uh, pleasure to talk to, Dr. Oveda. I really appreciate it. Tell folks your two websites. Now you have ovedahealth.com, right, when well, we got that one. Uh, so com. that is my telemedicine practice okay. where, like I said, I work with people one-on-one to uh, help them understand their metabolic health, help them to prevent uh, and manage um, the heart disease that they may have before you end up on my operating table. <laughs> um, and then I have uh, ifixhearts.com. Um, which is where I do uh, coaching uh, with people. We have group and individual coaching available there. We also have a lot of educational materials. We have courses um, and other educational materials available at ifixhearts.com. And as I said, you can. I, I usually recommend people start at ifixhearts.com, take the quiz, figure out if you're metabolically healthy or not, and then uh, happy to connect with people and try oh, and great. help them with their metabolic health from there. Well, appreciate your work. And uh, once again, let's just show you the picture. You want to get his book too, Stay Off My Operating Table. <laughs> Dr. Philip Alvedi, Stay Off My Operating Table. Sir, thanks a lot for spending so much time with you. We kept you over time. I appreciate your, your being on the show. And you take care of yourself, all right? Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, been an honor. Dr. Philip Ovedia and stayoffmyoperatingtable.com, maybe. Good stuff, huh? So please uh, pass on these links, either the audio link or the, um, or the uh, link from BitChute on, uh, to people, people in your, your household or relatives that having some art things and they get a real good education here. Please pass on these links to everyone. I just do want to do a quick little plug here um, and... Uh, that uh, we talked about oxidative stress. Molecular hydrogen is one of the coolest things to clear out oxidative stress. Some great uh, research has been going on with uh, in Japan, uh, and uh, they are like the, the center of molecular hydrogen. You can go to molecularhydrogeninstitute.com and look at some of the peer-reviewed studies they're giving it to people with strokes. Very cool technology. You breathe the gas and drink the water. So I think it might be something you want to get. OneRadioNetwork.com. You'll see the ad. Holy Hydrogen, promo code OneRadio. So we'll see you um, Friday. We take Thursdays off. We'll see you on Friday. Let me know if I can help with anything. I really appreciate uh, your support. Just email me if I can help you. Patrick, OneRadioNetwork.com. Take care, and may the blessings be. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.